0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed: Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. Today I'm going to have a conversation with Professor Keith Morton of the Public and Community Service Department about his recent book, Getting Out, Youth Gangs, Violence, and Positive Change published in 2019 by the University of Massachusetts Press. The book recounts Dr. Morton's experience with an innovative youth program in the Smith Hill neighborhood of Providence, Rhode Island, aimed at reducing so-called gang violence in the community. Morton co-led the program between 2007 and 2015 with staff of Providence's Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. The book not only recounts Keith's experiences, but offers a profound reflection on how we conceptualize the violence of urban youth, the nature of youth gangs, and how a youth positive approach can support youth survival and growth despite contact with gang violence. Before we begin our conversation, let me tell you a bit more about Professor Morton. Keith Morton's PhD is in American studies earned at the University of Minnesota. He joined the Providence College faculty in 1994 as associate director of the then-new Feinstein Institute for Public Service, and as a professor in its public and community service program. Along with the Institute's director, Rick Battistoni, Keith shepherded the Institute and its innovative service-learning-based academic program through its early years. Quite soon, through Rick and Keith's leadership, the Institute became nationally recognized as a model for the development of service learning pedagogy and community-based learning. In these early years, Keith led in the development of the Institute's ties with the Smith Hill neighborhood, a neighborhood which adjoins the Providence College campus. There he forged a unique and productive campus community collaboration. Uh, Professor Morton later served as director of the Feinstein Institute, stepping down from that post just last year. He continues on the faculty of the Public and Community Service Program, which he currently chairs. Along with his recent book, Keith has published extensively on service learning pedagogy, campus community relations, and nonviolence. He has been recognized with many awards over the course of his career, including the National Society for Experiential Education Distinguished Scholar Lifetime Achievement Award, awarded in 2016 and quite relevant to today's conversation, the Smith Hill MVP award given by the Smith Hill Community Development Corporation in 2017. I've had the good fortune to work with Keith in the Public and Community Service Program for nearly 30 years now, including co-teaching a class with him several years ago. I know him to be a superb teacher, dedicated to his students, a good soul profoundly committed to improving the lives of those in the communities in which he works, and a man of thoughtfulness and wisdom. I am eagerly looking forward to our conversation today. Professor Keith Morton, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Yeah,
1: thank you, Bill. I'm really uh, thrilled to be here with you today.
0: Okay, to start off, maybe you can tell us something about the Smith Hill neighborhood. Uh, You've worked in that neighborhood for about 30 years now. It's a very interesting place we both know. So maybe you can just give us just some background of what that neighborhood's like, something about its history, et cetera.
1: Sure, um, just a real broad brush um, description and then if there's specific things you'd like to know a little more about, just let me know. But it's a tiny kind of one square mile neighborhood, um, sort of on the Northern part of the city of Providence, um, about 6,000 to 7,000 residents, depending on, um, who's doing the counting for the most part. And it's probably about a third white, a third um, African-American, black, and a third um, Asian and a um, little bit of um, people from other, other places. But uh, one of the most interesting characteristics of the neighborhood historically is just, it's also been an immigrant neighborhood um, for, since it was founded in the 1860s. And part of the pattern of immigration to Smith Hill um, that I've just found really interesting is that it's mostly people arriving as refugees. They're people coming out of uh, histories of violence, experiences of violence to the neighborhood as kind of a refuge. And I I do think that has um, impacted a little bit of the way the neighborhood functions and sort of the uh, emotional energy that you find in the neighborhood. It's also a really young neighborhood, about uh, 38, 40% of its residents are under 24 years old. Um, And in 1994, when I first started uh, visiting the neighborhood and getting to know people, um, there were really three things that emerged consistently as concerns that they had. One was um, abandoned and vacant lots and housing. Another was the relative absence of economic opportunity uh, particularly economic opportunity for young people. And then the third was a lot of concern for violence in the neighborhood and particularly uh, youth violence, violence on kids, young people, but also violence that they were involved in um, perpetrating or causing. And um, fast forward to now, and I think if you uh, want to go out and do a similar set of deep conversations with residents, you'd find that those three same issues are still very, very close to the top of the list. Um, Last thing I'll say about the neighborhood that maybe matters. And I think this is really much of what I'm saying is really typical of um, urban neighborhoods like Smith Hill. It's uh, mostly a low income neighborhood, um, but it has about 20% of the population that's been there 20 years or more, long, long time, the real backbone of the community um, leaders, been there for generations in many instances. And then probably about 40%, 50% of the population is there five years or less. So it's also simultaneously really transitory um, neighborhood. And I think that, again, that dynamic tension between those two groups of people does a lot to frame how the neighborhood operates, kind of the politics um, at a real local scale.
0: Yeah, I'm really uh, taken by your by, by your observation that it's a neighborhood of, of immigrants, but of immigrants who were usually refugees. And certainly it began that way in the 19th century when the first immigrants were Irish, right? The predominantly uh, Smithville was known as an Irish neighborhood. But even then it had a variety of uh, people from uh, different areas, uh, a big Jewish community uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and again, those people, refugees, Many from Eastern Europe and uh, and the like, and, and then I remember uh, uh, the nineteen seventies when I first became aware of Smith Hill and the obvious influx of Vietnamese and Laotian refugees, uh, which really uh, was uh, was marked in the community. You could you could suddenly you saw Asian people on the streets on Smith Street, which is the main thoroughfare uh, going through the neighborhood, and they hadn't been present there. And of course, they remain a major uh, group uh, in the neighborhood today. Um, and, and we're, we're an important part of your, your Rec Night program. So so maybe um, with that sort of pre-see on the, on the neighborhood, uh, before we talk about your program, you did mention that there is a concern for crime and violence in the neighborhood, uh, and a Smith Hill is known for uh, a neighborhood in which there are youth gangs present. Uh, could, could you describe a little bit about that aspect of the neighborhood? Uh, what, what kinds of gangs or other youth, uh, or, uh, I, I guess, uh, groupings are, are present there?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a comp, your question's more complicated than you might imagine, Bill, just because one of the challenges in this whole field is figuring out what a gang actually is. And, um, you know, the joke if you put three academics in a room, you'll get five opinions. Um, so there's um, quite a bis- bit of conversation about that. But part of the reason, of the really valid reason for the difficulty in defining what a gang is, is that it's kind of a catch-all on the one hand it's very amorphous but on the other hand it operates more as a metaphor um, in which people put a lot of their concerns about the communities that they live in but you can think about it as a continuum from um, just a group of young people who live on a street or a block together and they start hanging out and then they start looking out for each other and um, they have is a sense of themselves, this idea that they have to protect themselves. And um, so that could just be a little crew that, that gets together. It could be a youth gang, a little bit more organized, usually a younger but charismatic leader or two who um, kind of get them a little bit more formally set up. So they probably have some colors and a name and um, start to do things to get a reputation a little bit. And then at the other end of the continuum are um, organized adult led gangs that are, as much criminal enterprises as they are also groups of people um, associating and for a variety of reasons. Um, And what you see in Smith Hill um, for the most part is less organized gangs, I would say. There's a couple that have been around a little bit longer um, but they tend to move in and out of the neighborhood. the ones I paid the most attention to was the most interested in were the um, groups of young people, often as starting as young as middle school, who would begin to collect into a crew or a set and um, start to get themselves into trouble and upset other people in the neighborhood. And I think that that was the biggest concern that uh, most residents had. And the one that um, you'd mentioned, some of the um, ways that this intersected with the immigration history of the neighborhood. One of the um, crews that started out this way, a small, pretty, um, just a group of young people hanging out, turned in over time, turned into Laos Pride, which was one of the more serious gangs in the neighborhood by the nineteen, um, by the early nineteen nineties, and um, they were they developed quite a reputation. Um, their members aged up into being adults and the gang continued and brought in juniors and you know, kind of had some generational continuity also. Um, and that, that kind of, people worried about it because of the violence that it brought with it and also because of the risk that it put the people they cared about in. Um, because you have to remember that in a neighborhood gang members are related to many of the other residents in the neighborhood. So there's, you know, fear in a lot of different
0: ways. You right. know. Uh, I imagine that the, the situation you described there uh, may not be that, uh, be, be that different from the way things were with the Irish in the 19th century. My, my guess is, I, I don't know the detailed history, but my guess is that we do know that there were, were organized crime Irish organized crime, uh, which we would perhaps today label gangs. Uh, I imagine the, the idea of crews and neighborhood kids hanging out was probably present uh, even then. In your book, you say that gang is a social construct built by the ways that protectors of civil society view and define, quote, gang, unquote, and, quote, gang member, unquote, and by the ways youth understand the terms. These views are at odds with one another, and the differences matter because power is involved. Could you say something about this sort of dual view of this concept social construct of gangs from the perspective of the dominant society versus how the youth in the neighborhood are, are seeing these these organizations
1: Yeah um, yeah it's a it's a really great question I think because it gets at the heart of really starting to unpack what um, the experiences of these young people and figuring out what what can be done to support them as they try to move in a more um, life-affirming direction. Um, So on the one hand, I think maybe the place to start is with the young people themselves. And most often the way that they all find themselves getting into activity or behaviors that are, Um, recognized or labeled as gang activity is that they're um, going through a set of experiences that are um, threatening to them and their friends and people that they care about. And there doesn't seem to be any way to resolve those. So they'll ask uh, teachers for help and the teachers might do something in the moment, but they can't protect them outside of school, or maybe they don't respond much. Um, the police aren't somebody they can go to because they don't trust the police or they've had negative experiences or both, um, or police are interested in more serious problems and just don't have time. Um, they don't have uh, family or parents who are in a position to be able to provide them the kind of security that they, they're asking for or the kind of um, emotional support that they need. And after a little while the young people start thinking boy you know the world's a really complicated and dangerous place and it's kind of on me and my friends to take care of ourselves and they internalize this idea which is really broadly available in our culture that in order to protect me and my friends i have to be capable of some kind of violence and so there's a interestingly enough there's a real ethical um, experience that young people go through as they start to consider if and how they're going to be violent and under what conditions it's okay and what conditions it's not. So, the point being that from the young person's point of view, the uh, violence associated with being in a gang usually comes out. I'm, I'm trying to protect my friends and myself from being bullied. Yeah, I, or I, um,
0: I want to have somebody. I want to. I want somebody at my back.
1: But yeah, I want, I want somebody to get my back, and I'll get somebody else's back. Um, but it's coming out of a, you know, you know, it's coming out of a place that most of us, I think, would look at and say, "Yeah, that's a pretty not only understandable, but that's a pretty generous worldview that you're trying to care for your community, such as you see it." On the other hand, those same behaviors um, are often interpreted by uh, police by adults in the community, by teachers and administrators in the schools as negative behaviors. that they're the things that kids are um, put on lists for and they're um, punished for and they're watched. And I think it's really confusing to the young person and they've got a limited number of options for interpreting that. One is adults don't really know what they're doing or talking about, (laughs) you hear that sometimes, right? Or um, adults are kidding themselves Um, or they're just simply naive, and they really believe the world is this way, and it isn't. So the kids start to think, you know, I've got an experience of the world that doesn't line up with the interpretation that I'm being offered by these adults that I know, and um, I'm either going to trust them, or I'm going to trust my experience, and if the risk is that I'm going to be harmed, I'm going to choose my experience, because that matters more to me. It makes more sense.
0: Yeah. One of the ways you put it in the book, you say gang members believe that they are doing good under the circumstances.
1: Yeah. 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 So, it's, you know, and I, I can tell you a lot of stories that, um, you know, the there's a process uh, by which people, any of us can be learn violence. Um, and there's a part of that process. One of the experiences that can happen is that it's not so much, for example, you being bullied as it's you being forced to watch somebody you care about being bullied or humiliated or harmed in some way, and you feel powerless to do anything about it. And that's a really um, traumatic experience, in a, in a whole bunch of ways. And so the good is at some point I make a resolution that I'm not going to allow that bad thing to continue to happen. Right. Um,
0: yeah. And I'm going to be more effective if I have a group of buddies in the neighborhood who've got my yeah. back. You know, when I
1: and there, know, and there like, also is um, that's really true and um, and of course you also inherit all the problems that they're having so it's, you find all of a sudden you have a lot more issues than you imagine guys
0: the guys that got your back also know somebody that's being bullied right Yeah, yeah. exactly So you're confronting lots of you bull-
1: multiply uh, yeah. unexpectedly right but um, but the other thing that makes it problematic, is that there's kind of an internal logic to violence itself, which um, people who have to contend with it directly, uh, regularly learn. And that is that if I go on the offensive first, my chances of winning go up. If I go from um, standstill to 100 miles an hour the fastest, my chances of winning go up. If I'm willing to escalate the kind of weapon or violence being used, my chances of winning go up. And so there's a, um, a lot of reasons to become um, much more aggressive as a way of performing violence, not because you think of yourself as an aggressive person, but because it makes you more successful. It's also worth saying that a lot of young people try this out and aren't very good at it, or it you know, blows back on them in some way, and they drop it pretty quickly and move on. So the kids that are at highest risk, the young people at, high, at highest risk are um, ironically the ones who are also the best at defending themselves, the best at fighting. You know, they, um, so the kids that you find often in gangs, especially in kind of leadership roles, um, they tend to be physically strong and good athletes. They're usually pretty smart and strategic, good problem solvers. They're charismatic, so other people like being around them. So they tend to be good communicators. You know, so there are these young people with all these gifts, um, but they're being put into a situation where those gifts are producing behaviors that the civil society um, world looks at um, as really negative, and again, real, very confusing. You know?
0: Another important point you make in the book is, is: you have a long chapter on violence, and and you point out how the behavior of these youth uh, really is not that much at odds with. How the larger society understands violence. Uh, you have a long discussion about uh, uh, peace requires violence. There's this there's a sense that that if, if we're going to have a situation of peace, or from the point of view of the the youth who wants to stop the bullying, you know, let's create peace. You've got to be prepared to be violent. Uh, maybe you can say something more about that. I I, I was intrigued by your analysis of the. Clint Eastwood movie, uh, *Pale Rider*, uh, yeah, the illustration yeah. of this, of this dominant. Uh, the
1: yeah, and you you start seeing it, and it's just everywhere. I mean, you find the, that narrative and literature, and like you're saying in the movies, um, you know. But it, it's sort of, part of it, I think, is a, um, an adaptation of our way of thinking about the world to the kind of um, histories that all, that many of us the cultures we come from have for many of us. And um, the, so the, the big question is, what do I make of, of violence generally um, violence historically and the fear that I have that if I choose to not be violent, I'm going to be, um, crushed somehow, um, or uh, just erased, and um, humiliated, taken over, defeated. And the, what's taught, and this is also gendered to a very large extent, um, not only in the United States, but um, you know, many, many places, um, is that if you are going to be an adult, and particularly an adult man, you should have a capacity for violence under certain conditions or at least be willing to support it under certain conditions. But the idea of it is that you can turn it on and off depending on the conditions in which you find yourself, that it's a tool that you can use, but it doesn't have to affect the way that you see the world or interact with other people. And I think the um, there's a lot of evidence that you just can't turn it on or off at will, that it becomes so um, absorbing And, you know, so Stephen Carter has this book, um, you know, that uh, peace requires violence. You see Barack Obama accepting the Nobel Prize for Peace, and first words out of his mouth are, you know, I do believe in war in certain circumstances. So it's just this, this idea that strength requires violence, and really it's coming out of fear of The same kinds of things that um, these young people and gangs are afraid of, which are, I'm going to be defeated, I'm going to be humiliated, my power is going to be taken away. Um, The other thing it gets to, and this is not original to me by any stretch, is this idea of legitimate or illegitimate violence. And, you know, Max Weber's classic sociological definition of the state is that it's the repository of legitimate violence, um, the military and the police. So the idea there is there's an ethical standard that they have to meet that you only use that state violence under a very narrow um, set of conditions and those have a legal code to guide them. So the problem of the 19th and 20th centuries, now the 21st century, is what happens is that um, boundary keeps getting eroded and more eroded. And so, you know, I, I, um, an example would be uh, more recently with um, George Floyd's murder by Derek Chauvin and then Derek Chauvin's, um, the verdict in his trial that he's guilty of murder, in fact, as a police officer. It's not only the violation and loss of human life that upsets people so much, although that's you know important in its own right, but it's that um, the question that Chauvin's behavior brought to the surface do the police have any boundaries on their violence? Are they any different than the criminals that we have given them permission to pursue? Flip the lens around a little bit and you have a young person using violence to protect themselves because they feel very threatened and at risk out in the world and the adults aren't standing up for them. And um, that is illegitimate violence. So it's criminalized and all of a sudden they find themselves arrested on the way to prison or kicked out of school and expelled. And, um, you know, the um, theologian, René Girard says what happens if those boundaries start to morph into each other, they sort of get erased. And this, um, the boundary that we use to frame legitimate violence disappears. He says, inevitably what happens is that the amount of violence doubles because sides begin to push harder and harder. So, you know, one of the risks for our current moment as a civil society is whether this um, erasure of the uh, legitimate violence is actually a bigger social phenomenon or it's just happening in isolated pockets. Is it some bad cops doing you know, a few bad apples in the police department or is it something more systemic and structural that's uh, really, really deeply concerning?
0: It strikes me that the perspective of the youth that resort to violence, they think they're doing good by protecting themselves. Their perspective is no different from that of the so-called vigilantes who want to carry a gun, you know, in Texas because they need it for self-protection, they claim. Uh, Other than, I guess, who that violence is directed against.
1: Yeah. And, and, I, and I do want to be clear that in our, um, the work I've done, the, I've worked alongside officers who are really dedicated to community policing and do it exceptionally well. And they can make their role in a community uh, very powerful and positive. At the same time, though, um, I've got, I know a lot of young people who a uh, police officer decides that their job is to try to scare them straight so all they're doing, the young person is doing is walking down the street and they're stopped and braced against the police car. Their background is run, you know, they're interrogated or they're pushed onto the ground. Um, and that is really traumatizing for the young person. But the police officer has in mind, I'm telling this kid that if they don't keep themselves on the straight and narrow, they're going to get into real serious trouble, right? And so you've got, you're like, who, who is where's legitimate violence in that? Right. And so the kids experience of this institution, this civil institution that we're all, our society tries to teach us to depend on is like, this guy is not my friend. He already thinks I'm a criminal. Right. That's, and he's traumatizing me. And so I'm going to resist because I just want him out of my, out of my space.
0: Yeah. And actually in in, in contemporary society, you know, in the last few years with the focus on police violence, we've seen so many instances, thanks to body cams, now of the police, perhaps thinking that they're doing the right thing are clearly creating a situation that, is, that has to be traumatizing. If, if you put yourself in the shoes of the person who's being yanked out of the car or whatever. Uh,
1: well, and let's do the thought experiment, which I, th- I, th- I think is really valuable, that it's not only traumatizing for the people being yanked out of the car or stopped, But let's let's say that the kind of violence that is um, happening is also potentially traumatizing for police. So we're putting we're creating a situation in which everyone is traumatized in some way, shape, or form. And the um, psychiatrists who look at um, trauma and sort of persistent trauma and the kinds of effects that it can have long term in terms of long term health, they say it's not only that there's a, a dramatic event that you know physically harms you or emotionally harms you but that it's a uh, it, accompanying that is a sense that something is wrong that uh, an ethical standard has been violated the right thing hasn't been done right and so you have this kind of potential in uh, something as simple as a police stop for there to be trauma all the way around the circle
0: well i, I was i was also interested in your discussion in the book about the occupation and the view that the youth have of the police. At one point, you say gang members are resisting the occupation. The occupation is is their view of the police presence in the community And, and the structural violence that it represents and demonstrating a willingness to make a blood sacrifice to restore order on their terms. So there's a couple of things I'd like you to unpack there. One, this notion of the occupation, and as a as a kind of structural violence that the youth perceive, and then also this notice notice uh, this notion of sacrifice that that in order to uh, that you, that that part of the violence is that you're willing to sacrifice yourself in a violent situation to make the world right.
1: yeah. Yeah, and you find, again, this kind of odd symmetry of, you know, one of the things that um, police officers are valued for is that they not only will put themselves in the way of physical harm, but they are willing to enter into these um, really complex and sometimes irresolvable conflicts and have an emotional impact from, you know, responding to domestic violence calls and things like that. Um, you know, that that takes a real toll on people's lives, right? Uh, but simultaneously, um, you know, young people in a street crew are trying to protect and care for the people around them, and they're willing to sacrifice, put themselves on the line, emotionally, physically, to do the same thing, right? Um, so there's this kind of odd symmetry, you know, in a way. But I think, you know, to kind of push your question forward a little bit, um. Just uh, recently, a couple, a week or two ago, here in Providence, um, a police sergeant was found guilty of misdemeanor assault um, for um, kicking and punching a a handcuffed suspect who was on the ground. Right, and um, that has blown up. It got's got the um, Providence External Review Authority. It's created a huge conflict within that. Um, government body, it's brought to it's um, resulting in protests that are calling for the um, elimination of the law enforcement officers' bill of rights in the state of Rhode Island, and that now has the endorsement of the mayor. Um, it has the uh, um, Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP, um, fully opposed to the doing away with that. And it's got the police chief saying, well, I'd like to get rid of part of it because I actually am not allowed to discipline my officers. Like this sergeant is still employed by the police department. He needs to be fired, right? Um, so he's somewhere in the middle. And, and what I think if you project that out into our larger community, what you find is this really um, discordant set of perspectives on what we think the police are actually constituted to do and how we'd like to see them do it. And what's overlooked um, too much, I think, is that it's a very racialized conversation. It's a conversation with a big component of racial history baked into it. And very often, I think the voices that are about um, the occupation are voices in communities where that is how they experience policing for the most part. And um, you have a sort of set of civil society actors who are thinking, no, we just, we have the ground rules kind of wrong, but it's a good institution. We just need to make it work better. And then you have a group of people um, kind of outside of the um, situation who were thinking, no, we really need to militarize this even more heavily and keep this problem contained because that's where the violence is. You know, the violence is in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, not in my neighborhood. So you have these three really, really different perspectives going on and not doing a very good job um, hearing one another.
0: Yeah, it's not surprising that a 13 or 14 or 15 year old uh, might be very confused about how he or she is gonna go about protecting themselves in this society and and what the rules really are that they need to adhere to. All right, we've kind of sketched out what we might call the problem here. Uh, why don't we turn to talk about RecNight and and the, and your idea of youth positive and and how you saw that as entering into this context and maybe making a difference, making life better uh, for these youth. Uh, perhaps where we do that though, you need perhaps you need to sketch out what you refer to in the book as kind of the more conventional approach to gang violence and how Night uh, was different from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this will be a gross oversimplification, but I think most um, most ways of addressing um, youth who are involved in a lot of violence is that there's a, an intervention and a, a requirement for behavioral modification. They have to change their behavior. And usually the perspective is there's something wrong with them and they need to be fixed. Um, and until they're fixed, they should be kept away from the rest of us, from the, you know, from the rest of society. So it's a pretty punitive um, behavioral perspective that's focused largely on what's wrong with them. It's a real deficit model. And I think, you know, what we came to <clears throat> over time was, you um, These are young people with a lot of gifts, as well as a lot of challenges. And what we need to do is create an environment in which the gifts and interests that they have are things that they can pursue more and more effectively and use more and more positively. And as they do that, the negative behavior that is of concern to them and to the community around them will begin to disappear. So, you know, it's... um, it's the idea of just simply creating more positive alternatives for young people to choose. And the complexity of it in practice is that you're pretty constrained by how much you can influence the context in which a young person is living that produce the decision to become violent in the first place, right? So they're living in a situation that makes this violence seem like a good idea. They're creating Alternative op- pathways for them, but they're still often, especially initially, finding themselves embedded in that initial, in that original situation. So it's just really, really messy, and because of that, it takes time. You know, it takes um, a year, two years, three years, five years for this to really work itself out. And you know, some of the book is also about um, if I'm going to tell you that. Don't try to try to be, try not to be violent. Like don't use violence next time somebody makes you angry. Don't swing at them, like that's just, that's okay. Um, and people kind of know that, youth kind of know that. But the question is, so what do I do instead? And, you know, the sort of nonviolence that the Nonviolence Institute and I would offer was not a theory of keeping in nonviolence. It was really, how does nonviolence work in practice? And it has to get you at least as much power in practice as violence does. Otherwise, you're not going to choose it.
0: Right. Keith, could you, could you kind of walk us through Rec Night? Uh, what was Rec Night? What happened there? Uh, and how did these, how did you, how were you able to, to promote nonviolence in this context?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, what I do want to say is that especially initially, I um, had a pretty secondary role in the program. Um, and a lot of what I would go on to learn was literally learned through the experience of rec night. So I felt like it was a really formative um, space for me as well as for a number of other people. But I got involved myself because I was invited to help a street worker at the Nonviolence Institute to Patumahong, um, get access to the rec center in the neighborhood. He wanted to bring in a group of about 20 young people who were mostly juniors in Laos Pride and just have them one night a week in the gym to hang out for three hours and relax and eat some food. And uh, they had a lot of difficulty getting the doors open for them because they were gang members and bad kids. And to himself had been a member of Laos Pride growing up, and I'd actually met him when he was a 13 or 14 year old guy vandalizing a community garden. Uh, we, we realized later we'd cross paths, um, but he had turned things around for himself and become a street worker and really trying to give back to his, his community. Um, <clears throat> so we started just going in with a small group of 20 to 30 people and just going in meant we also were having regular meetings with uh, our city council representative with the, um, The head of the Providence Rec Department, um, the chief of police and a whole bunch of other folks that we had to convince that it was just okay to open the doors for this this little project. Um, The kids who came started inviting their friends though and other people and before very long they had blown up to about 80 or 90 kids every Monday night would come into the gym Street workers at the Nonviolence Institute began bringing um, kids that they were working with to come and play basketball, get some food, hang out. And over the course of a couple of years, we were able to actually have crews from different parts of the city that would be um, fighting with each other outside of the wreck in that space together, playing basketball, eating food. And it just it's really started to suppress the amount of violence on the street. You can just see the difference because Um, But we used Rec Night not just as a place to come for three hours a week, but it was, um, we got to know the young people and it was like, would you like uh, to be part of a summer jobs program? Would you like to go hiking next weekend? Would you want to come up to Providence College and sit in on some classes and see what it's like? Would you, we often had um, uh, athletes from the men's and women's PC basketball teams, for example, that would come and volunteer at the program. And they would invite small groups of kids onto campus to check out the locker rooms or go to a game or something. So it was a lot of tiny little things. But the idea was that in a room with 60 or 80 or 90 kids who were all very much at risk, um, we'd also have 20 positive adults, street workers, community volunteers, college student volunteers. And any a young person wanted, they can find somebody to hang out with or talk with. And that process of just getting to know each other consistently over time did a lot to um, relieve the stress for at least a little bit that kids were in. And as we, and we would find ways to follow up with them outside, just sometimes informally, sometimes by helping them get access to um, professional support that they needed. Um, you know, it'll be everything from um, meet me over at this, you know, um, restaurant on Thursday and we'll just have lunch and catch up and see how you're doing Two, you have a court appearance next week we'll go with you to the court appearance and we'll um, stand up for you with a judge and you know back you up
0: when you say you're going to do better next
1: time you know so it's kind of a a real range but we just learned how to do
0: more and more of that in in the book you describe it as a deceptively simple program
1: yeah, yeah, no, and it's and what what's deceptively simple about it is um, we didn't set out to get young people involved in a program that was intervening and trying to fix them, but through the relationships we built with them, we would say, so what what's next? What can we do to support you? Like what what do you need to make the next positive move that you want to make? And sometimes it was really really tiny things, and sometimes it was bigger things. And so you just would talk with people about how are you going to make that move? What's going to, what's what's going to be next? Um, And the, the one of the other things that got to be really, really interesting is that we about halfway through the program began to recognize that um, there were a lot of people with beefs out on the street that didn't really want to fight each other. And what they would do was bring it to the program and they would, holler at each other in front of us and we would intervene and they would back down as though we had made them back down and it was mediated and that was it. But the only reason that worked is because they chose to do it inside of a place where they knew um, they'd be listened to and respected and then it could be squashed. So they were using it in this really constructive way to not have to fight outside of. Um, the rec center.
0: Yeah, and they, knew, um, and they knew it was a safe space where violence is off the table, right?
1: Yeah, and the, the only, you know, yelling. yeah, the only rule we had was ahimsa, you know, the um, Gandhi's rule for do no harm. Like, you can't do anything that's going to hurt yourself or anybody else. Any, anything else you want to do, you're welcome to. If you want to walk around without your shoes on or ride your trick bike into the lobby, like, we don't like that. We think it's kind of silly. But as long as you're not hurting somebody or yourself, we're not gonna we're not gonna kick you out. Like, um, yeah, and, um, and and it's safe. You know, we we respect you. But you can imagine a sort of cultural conflict that starts to arise when um, people who are a little scary out on the street are having a hollering match inside of a rec center. And we know that it's just, they're they're going to de-escalate it and it's going to be over pretty quickly to everybody's benefit. But if you're a new, if you're a staff person or a newcomer watching that, um, it looks like it could just escalate and become really, really dangerous. Um, So a lot of it was learning a really different way to interpret what was happening in front of your eyes. And that, that took, Getting used to for a lot of folks,
0: and you had some opposition over the years. Some people who were, were who who, who didn't think you were doing uh, the the appropriate thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. We had we had a lot of consistent opposition. I would say two encountered more of that than I did. Um, there are privileges that go with being a white male college professor that uh, two did not have as a uh, um, layotian. Um, ex-gang member with tattoos Um, you know those things really mattered kind of how he was perceived Um, and um, yeah it came from there wasn't any one institution that was all for us or all against us it really just stirred up these conversations there were police officers who would come in and demand to see our sign-in list because they were looking for gang members and they wanted to put people on the gang list. And we would say, no, you're not, that's not. So we allowed kids to just start signing in using nicknames, Mickey Mouse and um, Tupac and, you know, whatever they wanted. That was, so we didn't really sign people in in a legitimate way because of that. And on the other hand, we had uh, three or four police officers who came almost every week, who the kids got to know and trust. And if they got into a jam, that was somebody they could talk to and get really meaningful advice about how to handle it. And that that counted for something. So um, we had allies within the rec department and people who were really opposed to this program because we broke so many of their rules. One example of another small thing that made a big difference for our participants, but um, was also a rule violation, or two things that are related. Um, We didn't age segregate young people in our program. You could be as young as five or six and up to middle 20s, you know, pretty typically. And the reason was that a lot of times the older youth um, were responsible for babysitting the younger ones. The only way they could come to our program is if they could bring the little ones with them. Or that little one was their child or their cousin. And so they were, they were to participate, they had to be able to bring them. And so we realized in that, that we're supporting a community, not a bunch of individuals. And we have to support that community on its terms. You know, um, but that upsets people who are used to seeing youth programming age segregated. Another example would be we, didn't do police background checks for our volunteers and the reason for that was we had people with records um, coming in to volunteer at our program and reason again this is somebody's uncle or cousin or you know brother sister and um, they're valued members of the community we have expectations about how we're going to treat each other you can't do anything to hurt somebody we talked very candidly age appropriately with kids about how to make sure they were never in an unsafe situation with an adult um, or talk to us if they were. Um, but we knock on wood probably to some degree, but we never, to our knowledge, had any problems with, um, as a consequence of either of those choices. And we got a lot, a lot of positive benefit. from
0: it. Yeah. You, you tell so, an interesting story about the time early on when somebody where, where you did have a little violence because a kid brought a gun in his backpack you want to tell that story I thought that was
1: yeah it's one that um, you know I, I, um, I almost left out of the book because it's just so so open to um, harsh interpretation I guess I can say but yeah this gives a, this gives a real flavor for what was great and what was challenging um, one evening. Um, Kids are out playing basketball, a bunch are sitting on the bleachers, all of a sudden there's a little kerfuffle on the bleachers and a group of three or four kids goes out of the um, rec center pretty quickly. And um, we, we look out the window and out in the playground, two of the um, leaders of uh, youth leaders at rec night had a kid in a headlock and were smacking them. And we, so two and I ran outside and we were like, what, you know, what's going on here? I'm just, you know, this isn't okay for obvious reasons. And they said, well, well, we know the rule is no fighting inside the rec, rec night. So we came outside and um, this guy did something that we feel jeopardized the program. Um, what did he do? And they didn't want to tell us, didn't want to tell us. Well, it turned out that he had brought a pistol into the um, rec center in his backpack and he'd done it because he was feeling um, threatened walking to and from the rec center, wanted to participate enough that he thought that was a way to be there and protect himself. While the, um, he was brought outside and um, educated uh, by these other youth, his backpack was stolen and the gun disappeared. And we asked the kids, so why did you steal the, like, what's going on with this? And they were like, we knew that if um, anybody ever found the gun inside of the wreck with us there, the program would be shut down and that would be it. And the only, the way that we solved the problem was made sure the message got out, nobody brings a weapon in, and we got the weapon out before any adult
0: in authority could find it. Yeah, problematic in all kinds of different ways, right? The thing, um, the thing I write, like about it, it's no, there's two things I like about the story. One, it showed the commitment the kids had to the program. Yeah. Because this, this program is valuable. We don't want to jeopardize in any way. And mm-hmm. second, their adherence to the rules. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah. very paradoxical way. You know, if we're going to, we, we, we got to teach this kid a lesson and, well, We are gonna use violence, but it's gonna be outside the rec center. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then the conversation too and I had with all of them was sort of a non-violence conversation, which are, do you think there might be some civil society ways to solve this problem? Like maybe this kid who was feeling threatened should have called us and asked if he could get a ride to the rec night program or get a ride home, which we did for a lot of kids. Or um, maybe you could have trusted us to, Mediate this in some kind of way, or we could train you to do that without without thumping somebody. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: You used the metaphor of composting in talking mm-hmm. about what you did. Uh, you want to want to develop that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, you know, I, I think of compost is um, it's made up of what people usually view as the leftovers, the throwaways, the um, the things that nobody else wants kind of um the discards right and then with compost you take all that and you put it together and you let it sit for some time and it heats up and it um suddenly becomes soil which is the foundation for um everything we want to grow and eat um you know it's sort of the f- starting point for life as we know it and <clears throat> You know, a lot of, um, it's kind of an imperfect metaphor because they're, you know, the problem is not within the young people we were supporting, but these kids were very often looked at as um, these are the scapegoats, the discards, the, the thugs, the castoffs of our social system. Um, and our real thought was that these young people had it in themselves to become pretty much everything they needed to really grow. Um, the, other, the other way that I, I think about the metaphor, Bill, is um, you know, a friend of mine who's a, a really, a well-known organic farmer, um, says that the success of organic farming comes because you put plants under the, in the right conditions. So you know what they need in the soil, you know what they need from the sun, you know what they need for moisture and minerals and so on. And you put them in the right place, And the plant thrives and they have fewer insects, fewer diseases, and they produce more. So the idea with the young people is um, how do we put them in a place where they can thrive? And our starting assumption was it is natural for kids to thrive. And whenever they're not thriving, there must be something wrong with the conditions around them. So the problem lies not in the young person, but in the conditions that they find themselves in. So we need to help them get through the conditions they're in and try to change the conditions in a way that um, is more life-affirming for them, allows them to
0: thrive more naturally. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe tell us a couple of stories about some of the kids who went through the program and how it affected them? Uh, Yeah, you know... uh,
1: Yeah, you know, thinking about it now, the program ended in um, a, while, a while ago in 2015, 2016. I'm still in touch with a lot of the participants, um, many of whom are older now. They're in their middle, late 20s, even. And, um, you know, they're these are um, people who were uh, gang members, they were um, arrested or on the verge of it, um, involved in a lot of um, challenges, problems, dropped out of high school pretty often. Um, now they're um, dads, you know, a couple of them have young kids and they are like some of the best dads you could hope for. Um, they, they're really conscious of what it means to invest in, um, in their children. Um, one of my favorite stories is of a young guy who had he was about 15 years old. He was a top student at um, the college prep high school, classical high school here in Providence. And he got kicked out for being gang involved and getting into some fights in school. And pretty shortly, right on the heels of that, got arrested for carrying a pistol, a weapon, because a lot of younger kids would be used to carry weapons because they're um, charges would be less severe than for an adult doing the same thing. So he got arrested. He went to the training school and he came out of it really profoundly depressed um, and um, stayed with us. Got, you know, We knew him for a long time, provided a lot of support over several years. And when he reached the point of really feeling that he was a fork in, at a fork in the road about um, the future of his life, He decided to leave Providence um, and work for a traveling um, environmental remediation company. So he travels all over the United States, which is something he always wanted to do. And he works physically really, really hard remediating these big um, toxic pollution sites. But what was really remarkable, he's a kid who is really strategic and thoughtful. He's like a natural philosopher, like he should have been a philosophy major at some big college someplace because he just loves puzzling through things. Um, but he broke down his whole situation and the community of people he cared for at home. And he got himself into a, um, a foreman role for this traveling work that he did. And he started bringing people from his boys would come out and work for him. So he started getting people jobs, and pretty soon there was a whole crew of his old gang on the road with him, doing this positive environmental work, seeing the country, and you know, and they, they still like to gamble, and they, you know, I'm sure they. Did a few things that were, you know, illegal in terms of drugs or whatever, but they really stayed inside the lines and were just good citizens, you know, just normal people.
0: Sounds like um, another, another way of having having somebody's back, right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, that that whole ethic, um, and we really reinforced that, you know, part of the way of working with them is like, you know, we, we see what you're doing that's good. Like, we're not here to condemn you or, you know, fix you, like trying to, trying to redirect it. It also um, doesn't always go well. Um, you know, the two instances I think of, um, one young guy um, got himself, you know, his whole story um, is that he was um, arrested on part being part of a drive-by shooting. And um, I went to visit him at the ACI in the intake center. And the story that he told me was that he had gone along because he knew his friend was gonna do it with or without him. And he figured if he went along, he could make sure nobody got hurt. So he offered to be the shooter in the drive-by. And when they drove by the place where they were gonna fire the weapon, he said, I shot into the ground and then pretended that the gun had jammed. So nobody got hurt, but the police spotted us, they arrested us and here I am. And it's like, you know, you decide if you believe his story or not. and, but the problem that he had is that he was also an undocumented um, resident of the United States. And the day that he got out of um, his prison sentence for being involved in this drive-by, um, immigration services picked him up and whisked him off to an immigration jail in Alabama, where he did two more years. And when he was released from that, he came back to Providence and he was deported immediately to the, his country of origin. And uh, he's in the military there now. He's in the army in this country. And it's a pretty, um, pretty bad situation, you know, where, uh, and I'm sure he's more violent now simply because he's in an environment that rewards it.
0: Yeah, probably um, not shooting into the ground. In the no, not anymore. Right, right. Yeah. And,
1: I, and personally, I believed him when he told me that, you know, he said, I was thinking of everything we've we talked about, you know all the lessons about non-violence He's, that was the only way I could think of to be nonviolent. So again, a really smart, strategic, charismatic guy, but,
0: um, yeah. yeah, but, but also the story underlines the, the kind of, uh, relationships that these kids have that, that constrain them and limit their choices. Yeah. I'm sure he couldn't refute.
1: And being them. at the ACI to, you know, make this editorialize just a little bit, his, um, Two year his two years at the ACI cost us um, taxpayers $77,000 a year. Um, like, you know, so I, and this again, not original to me by any means, but you know, you look at that and you say, so what could, what kind of support could we have provided this young man at a really critical point, turning point in his life with $145,000? Um,
0: you know, a lot, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So you, if, yeah. If you were handed one hundred forty-five thousand, you probably would not have gotten in the car. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have had to make up the story. Okay, well, th- this has been a very uh, enlightening conversation. I, I was kind of curious. Uh, why did Recknight end? What what happened in twenty fifteen that you had to? It, it was a
1: uh, confluence of, of um, things. Um, the biggest one. Is that uh, two? After doing this, being working with the Nonviolence Institute for a decade, um, he had uh, two young kids. It's very stressful work, um, challenging hours, and he got a job that had stable hours, paid a lot more, and um, made family life easier for for him. So he he decided to move on, and it was a really positive change for him. Um, I was really not the point person in the community. I was really there to back two up. And the, it was um, a really rare opportunity to have someone, someone with my interests and network be able to connect so closely with somebody who had two's interests and network and life experiences. And he and I have continued to stay in regular touch. You know, we're still good friends No, but... Um, Uh, Without him, it was who else can fill that spot and there wasn't anybody really obvious. They also it created uh, um, an opportunity for the resistance that we had been holding at bay um, to really redouble. There had been some leadership changes and some key positions around the city that were pretty unhappy with the way we were doing things. um, And they redoubled their efforts. And um, to be honest, at that point, I was also just really tired of fighting that same battle over and over and over again and felt that um, we couldn't run the program well without this broad partnership really being high functioning,
0: so. Is the Institute for Study and Practice of Nonviolence still operating?
1: Yep, um, they've changed their name now. They're the Nonviolence Institute. They shortened it a little bit. Um, still going, still doing the same similar work. Um, I've been on their board since 2006 um, and continue to play a real active role with them and um, have translated a lot of the uh, lessons that we learned as a part of Rec Night because a lot of their staff were also really deeply involved in, in what we, we did. And a lot of their staff are people who grew up in um, contexts of a lot of street violence as well, community violence as well. So we've translated a lot of what we learned into program initiatives. And I'm really working with them a lot these days to figure out how do we measure and assess and um, tell the story of um, nonviolence as a method of intervention? Because it's, a lot of times it's like trying to prove a negative, how do we prove violence didn't happen? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, what's your assessment of conditions in the community now? with young people, uh, have, you, have you?
1: Yeah, really, really complicated. Um, you know, on the one hand, I continue to be so impressed by um, youth organizers like the Providence Student Union and the organizing they're doing around um, ed- education, with uh, calls for ethnic studies in the Providence schools and the uh, um, counselors, not cops, um, efforts that they're they're launching. Um, <clears throat> I think, so there's a lot of youth activism in Providence, which is really exciting. And there's just some amazing young people. Um, And on the other hand, I think the pandemic has really um, lifted the lid off. So it's much easier to see a lot of the struggles that young people, many young people in the city and in the state um, and nationally, but in the city for sure are having. So it's increased the stress level. Um, I think the rise in um, crime, um, crimes against Asians, hate crimes against Asians, has affected particularly Asian American youth in Providence. Um, something they're much more conscious of um, in a context where they're already pretty conscious conscious of that. It's also, um, you know, a time when um, violence, for the first time in about two decades, is starting to spike a little bit. Um, the last two years violence has increased for the first time in about 20-25 years Um, and we're seeing an increase in providence the interesting thing though it's only in the last six months really that a lot of the increase has been gang associated and kind of it's street shooting kind of stuff prior to that um, much of the violence over the last four or five years has really been domestic violence of one kind or another statewide as well as in providence and um, you know that gets kind of put into its own box and treated treated separately and differently when I think it's associated but um, I think the um, you know there's a correlation between poverty and violence uh, historically but at the same time there's no causal relationship and the majority of people who are in um, under economic stress never become violent and I don't see that uh, being a real, causal agent right now. There's also the last thing I'll say about it is um, I'm really privileged to know the current police chief and the immediate past police chief, um, so Hugh Clemens and Dean Esserman, and um, been able to talk with them a little bit about their take on the um, defund the police and Black Lives Matter um, energy that's out there. And um, what's interesting is that I think they're open to and part of a large um, cadre of police that are very open to rethinking how policing is done and what its intention and mission is. They really feel like they've um, their mission is way too contradictory and broad, and they're not trained to do much of it. Their officers aren't. Um, they're not opposed to taking school resources officers out of schools. Um, they were told to put them there, so they have. If they take them out, they can put them back out on the street, but they need to know what their job is, Um, As we talked about earlier, there's openness to revisiting qualified immunity and uh, um, law enforcement officers bill of rights for among some um, law enforcement folks. There's a lot of interest in that in the community. And one of the things that I find most promising in Providence is that um, there's a grassroots organization called the African American Ambassadors Group that has about 100 um, people from Providence who have been meeting very regularly over the course of the last year and a half to advise the mayor on what can be do be done around racial equity in the city of Providence. And he's really been listening and trying to implement their recommendations. And their recommendations are made based on what really politically is doable in the city of Providence. So there's like real listening and negotiation happening. And one of the strong stances they just took was to repeal the law enforcement officers bill of rights. And last week uh, the mayor endorsed that um, appeal and it's going to be really a big political shoving match for some long period of time. But I, I count that as prob. You know a kind of progress, and um, I don't know how broad or how um, small the change that it leads to will be, but I really feel like we're at a tipping point for um, completely reimagining how we maintain civil society in our communities. The last thing I would say to it is that one of the best responses to um, the debate about defund the police that I've heard is let's not make the conversation about defunding the police. Let's make the conversation instead about fully funding civil society institutions. Let's do the things that we know work um, and that make the police unnecessary. Like, let's take away their jobs right? that way, not the other way.
0: So. Let's generalize rec night. Out there in the yeah. community,
1: yeah, it's sort of in the values of it. You know, what happens if those values, more than the program, those values become right. the,
0: the leading values—the values, I, yeah. the, the values yeah. behind the program—will yeah. make everything youth positive.
1: Yeah. Well, and in, yeah. Cur- with, hopefully, with the current administration, that might be possible. So, yeah.
0: well, Keith, this has been a very interesting and thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us on Beyond Your Newsfeed. Uh, yeah. So, thanks so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, I appreciate your uh, thoughtful attention to the book and these ideas and um, enjoy the conversation, Bill. Thank
0: you. And thanks to Chris Judge, our producer who works with the Providence Marketing Communications Department. And thanks to all our listeners. Uh, Please tell four friends about Beyond Your News Feed and you can download us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.